Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manus Chavla, and I'm so excited today to be joined by Ambassador Toro Hardy. He previously served as the Venezuelan ambassador to the United States, the United Kingdom, Spain, Brazil, Singapore, Chile, and Ireland, before resigning from the Venezuelan Foreign Service in protest for events taking place in his country. He's authored 21 books and co-authored 15 more on international affairs and history. His latest book, uh, America's Two Cold Wars, From Hegemony to Decline, was published in 2022. Dr. Hardy, it is so wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, my pleasure. So I had a good read of your book, and it was very, very fascinating. But I want to get to the sort of the core argument of it as soon as we can and sort of unpack it from there uh, as we go along. Um, you know, it seems to be a core argument is that whilst ideology was, you know, a, a key fueling factor between the conflict uh, with the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the previous Cold War, uh, it seems like there's emerging a new Cold War between the U.S. and China. Um, I'm wondering, you know, especially with the context of the war in Ukraine, uh, does that define more clearly the divide between democracy and autocracy for you? Uh, you know, will developments and ideological frameworks have taken place since the start of the war? Uh, you know, the way they shaped the emerging Cold War back then, will, will they shape the Cold War now between China and the U.S.? Well, indeed, ideology was the core element uh, in the Cold War be between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And that gave a, the U.S. a crucial advantage as the birthplace of liberal democracy and its most devoted preacher, uh, the, the United States was particularly well suited for a contest of ideologies. It was easy for Washington to claim the mantle of uh, leader of the free world. Nothing would be more useful for the U.S. nowadays uh, in its fresh confrontation with uh, China uh, than a new ideological contest as it happened during the first Cold War. Uh, this could provide a strong sense of purpose and uh, much needed coherence in, in its actions. Uh, and uh, not surprisingly, President Biden has become a ardent proponent of uh, an ideological contest between democracy and authoritarianism. Uh, aiming at the fundamental debate of, between those who either believe in autocracy or democracy as the best way forward. Uh, however, America's liberal order has been invaded by the cancer of populism, and its, its basic norms are under threat at home itself, hence ideology is a non-starter for the U.S. at this junction, should Washington want to, uh, to, to, to uh, present its liberal credentials, it may be hampered by the, by the fact that uh, for many countries, according to the polls, the U.S. democracy, it's not credible. Moreover, if, a, if ideology has become a non-starter uh, for the U.S., uh, 
promoting an ideological contest for, for, for China is a road to nowhere. Since Deng Xiaoping times, all that matters is that the catch, uh, that the cat catches mice. Uh, a straightforward social contract exists between the Communist Party and the Chinese people since Deng's time, which is, uh, we'll make you better and you'll follow our orders. That bargain can endure as long as the regime keeps delivering. Delivering thus becomes the magic uh, catchword and Chinese accomplishment during these last four decades, uh, which by the way, have no precedent in recording in recorded history, are a testament to it. Within the, this contest, uh, the authoritarian nature of China's regime is not tantamount to ideology, but to political culture is simply a political culture that dates back to the country's unification in 221 BC at the time of the establishment of the Qin dynasty. As such, the Communist Party exists within a continuum with China's long dynastic history. Within it lies a Confucian culture uh, in which the ruler is compared to an authoritarian father uh, presiding over an extended family. Although war in Ukraine, as you mentioned, has, and, and it represents a change, this has given a temporary lift to Biden's democracy versus autocracy debate. Uh, but the fact is that the, the, this doesn't change the fact that populism in America has profoundly eroded the country's liberal credentials, especially so as in three years time, Washington could be again inaugurated, inaugurating another Trump administration. Um, and this doesn't change the fact neither that for the Chinese, the cat has to keep catching mice, irrespective of ideologies. Hmm. I mean, the sense that I'm getting both from your answers and reading your book uh, is that ultimately the U.S. Is, is going to fare worse in this emerging Cold War uh, than, you know, suppose it did with the one in the Soviet Union. Um, you know, instead of emerging from this conflict at the apex of the international system, the current conflict could well trigger its demise. I'm wondering, do you think, uh, you know, will ultimately, will China replace uh, the U.S. as global hegemon? How does China emerge from this conflict? Well, I would say that uh, during its first Cold War with the Soviets, the U.S. had the win at its back with all the right configuration of factors supporting it. The playing field was the right one, meaning the core element ideology was its biggest strength. Its support base was large. There was an extensive network of alliances that reinforced its position. 
its consistency of purpose was clear cut, both domestically and externally, it followed a clear roadmap. The economic correlation between both superpowers work on America's behalf. It, uh, the U.S. inhabited in the economic high ground. And the final objective uh, was attainable, meaning the contention of the Soviet Union expansion. Uh, hence, all these factors allow for a successful uh, outcome. The problem being that at this time, uh, the, the, the wind, it's, uh, it's, it's blowing in the opposite direction, with America confronting the wrong configuration of factors, meaning the playing field doesn't favor it at its core underpinning element, its, uh, its main weakness, meaning its, cap its capacity to deliver. The support, the support base is faltering as credibility among allies has reached a historical low. Although at this point in time, it has been temporary, temporarily halted uh, due to Russia's invasion to Ukraine. The consistency of purpose is weak as its political parties inhabit in different foreign in different foreign policy planets and its society is utterly polarized. The economic correlation puts it in a flickering place, as in a few years' time, the US will be sliding into the economic lowlands in relation to China. And the final objective, the contention of China, uh, looks, uh, doesn't look as a reasonable proposition because it wants to contain China in its own background and where it controls the theater of operations. On the other hand, China can excel in a context frame in terms of delivering results. Its international support base is very, it's wide, it's, I would say it's much wider as it has countless economic partners that have become stakeholders in China's success. Its economic stress, uh, strength will keep, uh, will keep increasing with every passing year. And the notion of its containment looks unattainable. As a result, while the first Cold War ended up projecting the US to the pinnacle of the international system, this new Cold War could uh, might just signal the transit from preeminence to decline. Mm. I would say that with uh, such an auspicious outlook, common sense would advise that the US explores alternatives to Cold War with China. As Paul Kennedy has argued, the decline of American leadership is uh, relative and not absolute. And uh, the only serious threat that America faces that could accelerate that trend 
would come from its failure to adjust to a new worker relation of power. And if it fails to do so, it could indeed be that China emerges as a future hegemon. As you say, Master Hardy, um, you know, the, the likelihood that containment uh, is a viable policy is, is increasingly, you know, it doesn't seem like it might be a viable policy. Um, but, you know, ultimately, the U.S. has to adopt some way to sort of manage and prevent the dwindling of its power, uh, its demise from global hegemon. Um, one of these possible ways uh, you've written about is called constructive cohabitation. Constructive cohabitation with China. What would that look like in reality? Well, my book assumes my, that global sh shared governance uh, could benefit humanity as a whole. As none of the world, uh, most pressing challenges could be effectively addressed without cooperation between Washington and Beijing. It also assumes that conflict between both parties, it's a choice, not a necessity. And finally, it assumes as well that Washington's greatest challenge is embracing and managing the complexity of this relation. Hence, if both countries might become partners in solving uh, some of the world's most pressing, uh, pressing problems, if conflicts if conflict is a choice and not a necessity, and if there is a highly complex relation whose main challenge consists in embracing and managing complexity itself, there should be much stuff to work upon. Uh, an agreement of this sort should lead to the U.S. remaining as a major power, as a major power in Asia not the major, but as a major power in Asia, under a power sharing structure with China, while Washington accepts a larger global role for Beijing. If that were to be the case, Washington could, would have to negotiate a new distribution of political authority and influence to match the new distribution of power, but jointly with uh, being a power sharing structure, an agreement of this nature need that, both, uh, that the two sides adopt a flexible and nuanced approach. Uh, Kurt Campbell and, uh, and, and Jack Sullivan have written a very interesting article that Foreign Affairs in which they mention the Taiwan case as a model to follow. In their view, Taiwan is the greatest unclaimed success in the history of the US and China's relation, one characterized by intense engagement, mutual vigilance, a degree of distrust, patience, and restraint. According to them, this should be the characteristic of a relation between both superpowers. Of course, Needless to say that you need two for tango. And even if America turns out to be inclined to this kind of agreement, this would also require for China to be willing to accept a power sharing uh, structure in its own background and in the world in general. 
and uh, China might well be an unwilling tango partner as it perceives itself to be precisely at the time of a big power pushover. I want to sort of take forward that line as well of discussing you know, U.S. policy towards China. Um, you know, a recent stat I found was that in 2020, 73 uh, percent of Americans polled by the Pew Research Center held a negative view on China. And of course, uh, you know, international relations, we see this sort of dual interplay, you know, of public opinion driving foreign policy actions and of foreign policy actions and public diplomacy driving public opinion. I'm wondering in the context of U.S.-China relations, do you see one that's more dominant? Uh, you know, do, do you see public opinion driving foreign policy more than the reverse, say? Well, at this point in time, uh, the fact being that uh, you don't have a foreign policy towards China in the U.S. You have a bashing uh, attitude toward a bashing attitude toward China. This could be described as attitude. This could be described as emotions, but it could not be described as a foreign policy strategy. Mm. What you are lacking is a foreign policy strategy. And uh, it is very difficult to define a, a roadmap when you have two parties that inhabit in two different foreign policy planets, which is expression itself of an utterly polarized society that it, where you have two societies that, that coexist uh, side by side, demonizing each other and uh, unwilling to, to, to accept each other. And under those bases, of course, there is a passion pushing attitudes that comes from below up to the top, but at the same time, that projects itself from the top to below, but neither of them implies or defines a foreign policy strategy towards China. Mm. I think another key difference as well, I mean, insofar as we're, we're talking about differences between, you know, the old Cold War and the new one, uh, is that in the old Cold War, you know, one of the U.S.'s greatest strengths was, was its massive network of allies. Um, and I think, you know, U.S. policies of sort of unilateralism and isolationism under Donald Trump, at least in part, if not uh, majorly, are to blame for America really losing credibility among its allies. Like you said, it's an, at an all-time low. Uh, and, and the war in Ukraine is really, you know, much of a sort of an outlier than it is part of the trend. Um, certainly one of the key tenets of Biden's foreign policy is restoring these traditional alliances that's crumbled during the Trump presidency. Uh, I, I want your analysis um, on how effective he's been at that. Has he been successful at doing that? And has the war in Ukraine helped to strengthen those relations uh, between the U.S. and its allies in any way that might translate to the U.S.'s uh, attitude towards China? Well, the fact being that uh, the U.S. had a fantastic international architecture. After the World War II, the U.S. built an international system that uh, reinforced uh, its own pushover, its own strength in relation to uh, the Soviet Union. It worked exceedingly well. Uh, 
the, the USC Germany was based on the acquiescence of its many allies. And uh, when the, the Soviet system imploded, that system became global. Um, against common sense, uh, George W. Bush decided, or his administration decided, that this system didn't reflect the new correlation of power, according to which the US was the main power and needed to be respected by the rest. Hence, he simply uh, deflected multilateral cooperativism, which has been the basis of this system that uh, the US had constructed during years and years after the Second World War. And he defined a world in which everything was seen under the optic of with us or with it or against us. And of course, uh, credibility among allies uh, reached an historical low at that point in time. Afterwards, you had uh, Obama that tried to reconstruct that international um, the alliance system and U.S. international credibility, and he was in good track to doing that because he insisted that the U.S. should always be seen as the first about, uh, among many, but not as the only one. Uh, the U.S. would lead in a soft way. Um, and then when things were going in the right track, you had, uh, you had the arrival of Trump and his dog-eat-dog -dog foreign policy, according to which if uh, the top dog uh, would always prevail, and hence, he, 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 if you promoted this kind of, of environment, the U.S. would be on top, which of course was not the case, and that completely eroded uh, trust in U.S. leadership, as uh, was stated by some of America's closer allies, as American in Germany, uh, as Justin Trudeau in Canada, as Emmanuel Macron in France, and most of the allies who failed that they couldn't trust anymore the U.S. Now you have Biden, uh, who has been trying to reconstruct these, seven, these alliances, but uh, you cannot reconstruct easily mm. this, this kind of trust when, I mean, when in three years' time, as I was saying before, Trump can be back to, can be back to power, and when the cancer of populism has invaded uh, the, the America's democracy. Uh, suddenly, this invasion, this Russian invasion of Ukraine, has brought back uh, uh, has brought back the, the Atlantic Alliance, and uh, there is now a coalition of about forty countries that, under America's leadership, are confronting the Russian invasion and so on and so forth. But is this some, is this a new 
trend that arrived to state is something that uh, it's a temporary situation that may disappear soon. Uh, I definitely believe that uh, this is a temporary situation because there are many questions still to be answered. Mm. One, what if the war prolongs itself? Two, what if the cost increases substantially? Three, uh, what uh, indeed if uh, in a few months' time a new coalition in Congress in the US changes uh, the, the, the actual climate? And of course, what if in three years' time Trump gets back to power? There are many situations that are contingent to, 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 to America's uh, internal situation and at the same time contingent to an international ambience that it's very fluid itself. Uh, Marie Le, Marine Le Pen could have won uh, a few days ago and that would have changed the correlation. So the fact means that personally, I believe that uh, substance that, that the essence of this lack of trust in the US will not disappear easily, although it has been um, it has been pushed at this point in time due to the invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I want to flip that sort of conversation a little bit uh, and maybe now start talking about you know China's policy and the way that it's made. Uh, towards the U.S. Um, because I think a big difference is, I mean, if you look at the U.S. and you look at how foreign policy is made, uh, even a cursory look, you'll sort of quite quickly realize it's very, very complicated, uh, even more so than most Western countries. You know, there's a very tenuous relationship between congressional influence and presidential power. Public opinion uh, can often become very polarized. Uh, you know, there's certainly sort of independent, you know, national security organizations, uh, that all kind of, you know, chip in and have a say. And then, uh, you know, at the very end, all of this policy changes regularly, at least every four or eight years with, you know, a new president. Um, China's is, is very different to that. It's very centralized. Um, with essentially, you know, some might say Xi Jinping calling all the shots. That, you know, clearly has some, you know, advantages in terms of expediency uh, and how efficient it is to do things. I'm wondering, what do you think are the biggest drawbacks of having such a centralized form of decision-making from China's perspective? I would say, I will begin by comparing it with the, with America's Cold War with the Soviet Union. I, I, I would say that Americans greatly benefited from an, the open nature decision-making system. Mm. Uh, indeed, American democracy distributed the power to process information and make decisions among a plurality of people and institutions. Mm. Whereas the Soviet systems centralized information and power. So in America, you had free press, public debate, think tanks, lobbies, all of which allowed for, for the information to flow and be handled at different levels. Meanwhile, the division of the decision-making power in, in, in Washington fact, facilitated the adequate management of huge amounts of information. On the other hand, you had the Soviet centralized system, which simply 
couldn't, which was uh, centralized both information and uh, decision making. And hence, the system couldn't simply handle all that much, all that much information, which hampered perspective and adequate handling. The things have changed, though, since that moment. The diffusion of power to process information and make decisions that, that worked so well during the 20th century is now being outmatched uh, for what at the time was a clear weakness, meaning centralization of data. Mm. Artificial intelligence has moved the pendulum in the opposite direction. Not only because artificial intelligence allows to process countless amounts of information at astronomical speed, but because much machine learning improves when it's fed with larger amounts of information. This is a subject that uh, Israeli thinker Jubal uh, Noah Harari has dealt with. And uh, I think that as a result, what was considered as a strength of U.S. confrontation with the Soviets now works on behalf of a centralized system like the Chinese one. But on top of that, we had that uh, Xi Jinping has become an autocratic figure in China. And uh, you had to see what was the situation when he took power. There was a serious concern that the civilian leadership was losing control over the military. At the same time, the party was plagued by corruption, by struggles, and even by the threat of fragmentation. Um, so Xi Jinping used his anti-corruption campaign uh, not only to address corruption itself, but to push his rivals and the respective factions uh, away. And uh, well, this seems to have increased the efficacy of the regime in several ways. It has overcome the fracture of the political power that existed within it. Uh, it maintains the People Liberation's army uh, in tune with the party guidelines. And on the other hand, it has reconnected the party, the CCP, with the population, uh, which is in tune with the nationalistic, prevailing nationalistic sentiments exist existing within the population. Uh, this, of course, translates into a clear-cut agenda, firm control of power, and the possibility of coordinated action through different levels of civilian and military leadership and share goals between the rulers and the rule. But as you were mentioned, or, or the nature of your question was, what is the downsize of it and, and the downside of it? And of course, there is a fundamental downside the longer she remains in power, the more the political structure will adapt to his personality and his objectives. 
this equate his person to the political instability of the country. A collective leadership implied a institutionalized system of ruling and succession. And this is lacking now, uh, especially so because the sudden uh, death of the core leader could uh, create uh, havoc in China at, at this point in time, as successions have created big problems in, in, in China in, in previous occasions. Especially so, as the stability of the country depends on an overweight 68-year-old man with a history of smoking, who is a notorious workaholic, carrying on his shoulders the problem of 1.4 billion people. Hence, should he die suddenly, China might find itself in big trouble. Mm. It, you know, it seems clear to me from what you're saying that uh, certainly, you know, the way the path of China is on might well resemble, uh, you know, a few years down the line, the position that Russia is already in. You know, you see Vladimir Putin, uh, and not to make this entirely about sort of Russia, Ukraine, but, you know, the degree to which his decision making has been hampered by how centralized uh, foreign policy making is, uh, you know, in, in Russia. I mean, there's internal reports as well of, you know, everyone essentially just being yes men, no one really wanting to confront him when, you know, military and tactical decisions he makes, they know are uh, not very, uh, you know, tactical in the first place. So uh, that, that sort of, uh, you know, cult of personality can certainly damage institutions for, uh, you know, quite some time. And, and, and as you rightly point out, that, that, that could be a big problem. I also really loved your point about, you know, Yuval Noah Harari and the centralization of data. I think there's so many emerging trends in China that are so worrying and they come up at such a pace, we can hardly keep track of them. But, you know, anything from, uh, you know, facial surveillance to now, uh, you know, the, the talk of a central bank backed digital currency, uh, it seems like the government will have more and more information on, how, on its own citizens. Uh, and certainly, you know, if you look at past precedent, it doesn't look like it'll use that uh, in a way that entirely conforms with sort of liberal democratic norms of human rights. Um, I, you know, I, I also want to talk a bit about, uh, you know, we, 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 a key difference in, in the old Cold War was a lot of it was about hard power. You know, the narrative before that was about hard power. But, you know, this concept of soft power emerged almost directly as a response to that. Right. You couldn't quite uh, explain the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, through, you know, tanks and nuclear weapons. But you could explain it uh, through, you know, uh, you know, Western influence and, and sort of this, this attractiveness of Western culture and the hearts and minds uh, of Soviet citizens. Um, and I'm wondering how you feel that sort of soft power dynamic plays in this sort of emerging U.S.-China relationship. Uh, more specifically, I mean, is increasing its soft power and promoting its values and culture abroad, is that a foreign policy goal for China, would you say? I would say that a few years ago, soft power was indeed a main foreign policy goal for China. But at this point in time, it's not assertiveness and what had been called wolf warrior diplomacy mm. represent the nature of Xi Jinping's foreign policy today. And perhaps this needs some, some explanation. In the year 2000, 2004, 
the, the CCP, the communist regime, invited several dozen of Chinese intellectuals and, uh, and scholars to meet at Hainan, in Hainan Island uh, to conceptualize a China brand, a soft power strategy that could be successfully promoted abroad. And from there, the concept of China's peaceful rise emerged, was coined. This notion was an attempt to project a very different rising track uh, for China as the unsettling ones of, of, of uh, followed by Germany before World War I or by Japan before World War II. Uh, China's rise was not only to be peaceful, but to depend on reciprocity and win-win relations, etc. So it was a bright marketing strategy, providing at uh, giving Beijing, uh, aiming at providing Beijing with uh, uh, goodwill, international goodwill dividends. And this was accompanied by a public relations strategy as well. Uh, this, uh, you had the uh, CCTV in English that was created and that was put in motion and you have CCTV America and you have the English coverage on China Radio International and in Xinhua. And of course, you had the creation of the Confucius Institutes. Mm. And, uh, promptly proliferated around the world. This soft power strategy was particularly useful in, in relation to, to Europe. European, the European Union came to see China as a partner in its search for a peaceful and multipolar world. Some scholars in, in, in Europe even uh, attributed to China uh, 21st century qualities mentioning that while its leaders preached a doctrine of stability uh, and social harmony, its military talked more about soft power than hard, hard power, and so on. But the year of 2008, 2008 though, was a turning point, a, a turning point. It reflected an inflection point. Because uh, on the one hand, America's uh, led uh, world financial, uh, financial crisis and China's strengthening su successfully overcoming contagion of that crisis convinced Beijing that America was not 10 feet tall, while they themselves were much taller than they had presumed. From that moment onwards, so far, soft power ceased to be a relevant goal for the Chinese, and they became much more assertive. And of course, more was to come when in 2013, Xi Jinping uh, became president. It would su substantially intensify his uh, predecessor muscular falling policy and uh, under his leadership, uh, China has turned to be much more nationalistic and confrontational. Uh, China's current 
foreign policy follows, uh, complies with Hans Morgenthau's idea that uh, the motive, the principal motive for political action is of three types to keep power, to increase power, or to demonstrate power. Hmm. It, it's just so fascinating as well how you mentioned, uh, you know, China sort of employs soft power quite differently to, to the United States. You mentioned a couple of examples there. Um, and what I can kind of extrapolate from that is the use of Chinese soft power uh, is a lot more purposeful and top down and, you know, state influenced and government led uh, than, you know, say the United States. It seems like the Chinese, uh, insofar as, you know, if they care about their soft power, they really care about crafting it in a way that's consistent with the political ideals that's set by, you know, the top rungs of the political bureaucracy, very well by Xi Jinping. You know, this talk about Confucius Institutes and uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, whereas a lot of American soft power is organic, perhaps, or, you know, comes from its own cultural products. And I think for good reason, because of that, can become, you know, can fluctuate. Uh, a lot more as well, like we saw during during Trump. So, um, you know, so certainly sort of a key part of it that we'll keep watching. Uh, Ambassador Hardy, I just to close off, I want to ask you one question uh, that, you know, I tend to ask most of my guests. Uh, what is there something in particular kind of looking at U.S.-China relations going forward? Is there something in particular that makes you optimistic about the future? Unfortunately, this, this is not a good moment for being optimist. I think that uh, the situation has uh, gotten more complicated in every front. Globalization needs within its own word tendency. Uh, liberal order is on, is on the thread. And now this, you have uh, these blocking the making between China and Russia. I think this last issue is particularly worrisome, at least in relationship in relation to the US. This is something that the uh, US should never have allowed to take, uh, to take shape. The US should never allow that these two countries coalesce in the way they have. Hmm. Uh, of course, you cannot have anticipated this at the turn of the century. But since 2008 forward, the trend was clearly there. On the one hand, that year, Russia invaded Georgia because uh, it, it, it wanted to make clear that it didn't want further encroachment of the Western world within its borders. And on the other hand, as I was mentioning before, China became much more assertive and confrontation. So after that point in time, the US should have approached the lesser of the two competitors, which clearly was China, which clearly was Russia, in order to try to build bridges. Actually, that's what Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong did in 1972 in relation with the US when he felt that war with, uh, with, uh, with the Soviet Union was a, was, was, uh, was a direct and immediate threat. Um, not having diffused 
one of these rivalries, now the US had to confront the two of them simultaneously. In the best case scenario, this will pose a huge distraction for the US in the long run, given China a strategic opportunity that goes beyond its wildest dreams. But on the other hand, there is also the possibility that these two countries could coordinate their capability of response. So whatever the case, in the globalist scenario, there are not all that many favorable issues and the simple possibility that Trump could be back in power in three years is cursed. <laughs> uh, at least for me, it's a very scary proposition. It's reason enough to be worried. Well, maybe if we'll have the discussion again in, in three years' time, uh, we'll have we'll have a more sort of optimistic pathway forward uh, if Trump isn't in power. Um, but no, I really did enjoy this. And I think the, the conversation we had as part of this broader discussion, um, that's going to be the defining discussion of the 21st century of US-China. So um, it's one we're going to keep watching for a long time ahead. Uh, Ambassador Hardy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Very interesting conversation indeed. Indeed. And to find out more about London Politica, please visit our website, londonpolitica.com and follow us on LinkedIn. And that's all for this episode, folks. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I'll see you next week.